Amen. Good morning, everybody. Happy New Year. If you have your Bibles, please open to Matthew chapter 12. Continuing through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 through 37. I do want to, I want to thank Joel for uh, preaching last week. He, uh, you know, yeah, we can clap for him. It's, it's uh, Saturday around one o'clock. I, um, I lost my meal and, and I'm like, well, I think I can push through. I think I can push through. And then it's, you know, around nine o'clock at night, and Anna's like, I don't, even if you can push through, I don't think people want to be around you. And I'm like, well, maybe, maybe we'll call Joel. Judy had made some off comment, like if he, if I got, I told Joel to be ready by Sunday. And uh, so when Anna called Joel, he said, we were planning on missing church to go to camping. And so the, the, the humor in this is Joel's going to ditch church, so God made him preach. That happens to me every single <laughs> <laughs> that happens to me every Sunday. So I, uh, you know, so I do, I do want to thank him for that. It was, uh, you know, really, he, he, Joel is a, a sweet, warm man, and uh, he did a great job. And so I'm thankful for that. Um, one announcement, there's a sign-up sheet in the back for the, the men's Bible study. We're trying to get it started again. Uh, we want to do a, a series through Gene Getz's book, Measure of a Man. We don't have a clue when it's going to meet. It's a matter of like trying to rally the troops. And is it going to be Saturday morning in the evenings or during early morning? Um, we just want to try to figure out who's interested. So, so sign up if you are interested. Um, finally, next week on, on Sunday, uh, I don't know if you guys have seen the weather, but this is like, it, like it's weird in San Diego. It's like a bunch of days of rain is predicted. And so... Uh, right now, it looks like Sunday's clear. If it's not clear, we don't. It, it may shift last minute. Keep your eye out on the, the either the Facebook page or on um, on the E News. We we might declare. So it might turn into a, instead of a barbecue that we're going to send somebody down the hill to buy a bunch of uh, five dollar hot and ready uh, pizzas, and we'll have a we'll have a pizza indoor sort of thing. So um, with that, let's pray. Um, since Joel detoured from Matthew. I have uh, two weeks sermons to do today, <laughs> but I've adjusted a little bit. So I, uh, so let's pray. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for the gospel of Matthew as we've been going through this for a year now. Lord, I pray, um, Father, as we uh, examine this section of scripture, Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand what it means in context, Lord, that you would help us to see the, the big picture of what's happening here. Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts, Lord. May we uh, receive your word. May we draw closer to Christ. And Father, as we start this new year, we pray, Lord, that you would do an amazing work in our lives um, in Christ this year. May we grow deeper with you day by day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 12, verse 15. <clears throat> but Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all, and warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill which was what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in who my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. And he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, 
and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by who do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of, what, out of which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. And Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask, Father, that you would help us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so this passage, it's a longer passage. <clears throat> I really intended to do it in two parts. So I wasn't joking when I said I had two messages in one. Although we're going to, instead of sort of going deeper in each section, my, my aim is to sort of fly over and give us a bigger picture of what's happening here. Uh, there's, there's sort of three moving parts in this in this section. Uh, first, we see um, the, the father's analysis of, of who the son is. Uh, we see Matthew, he's going to quote from Isaiah. It's the longest quote in, 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 the, in the whole of Gospel of Matthew, basically um, showing the readers uh, how the father sees the son. And then we see the people who witness these miracles and see uh, the signs that Jesus was doing and how they respond to him and they they, they wrestle with or acknowledge, like, acknowledge and ponder that this could be the Son of Man, that this is the Messiah. And then finally we see the Pharisees and their viewing of the Messiah and the signs, and they basically accredit the signs that Jesus was doing to authenticate his Messiahship. They accredited this to Satan. And so in these moving parts, we see that there's Christ at center. We see people responding positively, and then we see people basically rejecting the Messiah. Uh, there really are only two options. 
And so we begin here, verse 15. Uh, but Jesus aware of this. Uh, what's, what's he aware of? What's been going on? Uh, the very first 14 verses of Matthew chapter 12, uh, we looked at a few weeks ago, sort of before Christmas. Uh, there's, <clears throat> there's Jesus and his guys that are walking down the road. They, they reached out. They, they picked some wheat out of the, the grain field. They do this, and then they begin to eat. The Pharisees jump out of the bushes and says, you guys are breaking the Sabbath laws. There's no Sabbath law that was violated, and Jesus sort of deals with them. Then they go into the synagogue, and there there's a, a, a man. I, my memory, I'm blanking on what was wrong with him, but he was paralyzed, I think. Uh, or no, he had the withered hand. He had the dried up hand. And so he, they, he, they're basically, the Pharisees ask Jesus, hey, is it lawful to, to heal a man on the Sabbath? And Jesus is like, you guys are ridiculous. If you had a sheep that fell into a hole, you would rescue the sheep. And so he tells the man, stretch out your hand and be healed. So the guy stretches out his hand, and his hand was basically restored. And this infuriated the Pharisees at verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as how they might destroy him. So apparently eating on a Saturday and healing on a Saturday are bad, but, but uh, plotting murder is totally acceptable. So they're furious. And so we see verse 15, but Jesus aware of this aware of their plotting murder, aware of their coming after him. We see that he withdrew from there. He basically disengages from their fight. He didn't do it secretly because we're told that many followed him. And these many that followed him, they clearly had needs. They, they were sick. They were, uh, they, we all are filled with sin, but they had physical needs that needed to be dealt with. And we're told that he healed them all. And he warned them not to tell who he was. And this is a stern warning. He says, don't say, um, don't say who did this. Don't say who I am. Uh, his hour had not come yet. He didn't want the sort of these sign wonders to sort of escalate and speed up the timeline for which the father had established. And so when Matthew looks at this whole scene of what Jesus is doing, remember all of Matthew is a gospel that's written to the Jewish people showing and demonstrating that Jesus fulfills everything uh, for Jesus become, being the Messiah, that he is the promised one, that he is indeed the Christ. And so verse 17, he says, this was fulfilled, uh, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. And so verses 18 through 21, it's a quote of Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. Now, if you go back to Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, and you examine the verbiage there, the verbiage is going to be different. Um, there, there's, a, there's a number of reasons for this. The, the Old Testament that we have is, is a direct translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. The, the Hebrew Scriptures that they were using, or the Old Testament that they were using during the New Testament, uh, was the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew. So there's often variance between what we see quoted in the New Testament for the Old and the Old Testament that we have. And then, in addition to this, Matthew is sort of paraphrasing in some respects. It doesn't, really, it doesn't align word for word. But Matthew basically quotes, so verses 18 through 21, this whole section deals with Matthew saying, when I look at what happened with Jesus, when I look at how he healed people, when he 
dealt with the law, when he did all of these things, when the Pharisees are coming after him and he gently withdrew, all of this was done to fulfill what Isaiah, that was written some 700 years prior to this, what Isaiah prophesied about the Messiah. And look what Isaiah says. Behold my servant in whom I have chosen. So this is the picture of the father uh, speaking of the son. This servant could be translated child. So we see in the Old Testament this prophecy of of, of this perfect image of the the child servant whom Christ really fulfilled. He says, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. If we were to Press rewind and go back to Matthew chapter 3 and go back to the baptism of Jesus. After John the Baptist baptizes Jesus as he comes up, the Father speaks from heaven and says these very same words, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. If we were to fast forward to chapter 17 at the transfiguration, when Jesus goes up on the hill and he basically allows his deity to be seen, that he glows. When they, uh, John, James... Um, wait, Peter, James, and John. You've got to say them in order or I get all messed up. <clears throat> when they see it, voice from heaven, the Father speaks and says, Behold, this is my, behold, this is my, uh, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. And then he says, Obey him. So this is the, the Father endorsing, say that as I examine the Son, There is no imperfection in him. The closer I get, the more I examine, there is no fault. There's no nothing. I think the whole engagement ring business is a big scam. You know what is it? it, I think it's three C's and the fourth one's misspelled. So it's three C's and a K. Clarity, cut, color, and carrot. But they don't spell it like a carrot you eat, I don't think, right? Three C's? Jewelry people? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen nods. I'm seeing nods. I don't spend a whole lot of time in the jewelry store. But they, they bust out the lights and they're raiding and basically they through their lens, through that black cloth, through all the lights as they examine the diamond, they have their little rating scale. Every diamond has imperfections. But the the least amount of perfections that that price goes. I I, I think of Great biographies, like I really enjoy biographies and some of the heroes of the faith. You start studying about the heroes of the faith and you think, oh, they're really great guys. And then as you read their biographies, you're like, they were a terrible husband. We're listening to one right now, Elmer Townsend, about his wife. It turns out his, his wife was literally just went crazy in the mission field and like all of the stuff he went through. And we tend to elevate people like the old, the farther away we get from them, the more saintly they become. And like, oh, they're... But if you read their stories, people are messed up. I don't care how, how well you serve. Christ is the only one that as we examine Jesus, that the Father examines him, he's without spot, and blink, uh, without spot or blemish. I almost said blinkle, but I don't know what blinkle is. I, I know what blinko is, but that's not... It has anything to do with... Now, moving on. But as we get Jesus, as you examine him, as you, as you question and investigate his life, there is no imperfection. And the Father says, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. And this is the key for this whole section. We're going to deal with this unpardonable sin, but we need to see that as Matthew looks at this, we, we see the triunity of the, the Godhead 
in Isaiah 7. This is Isaiah, I mean, it's, 40, it's 42, either verses 1 through 42, or maybe it's verse 2, I think. And we see the Father speaking of the Son, the servant, that his spirit is going to be upon him. And he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles, and he will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. See, now a king, when they came in that day, they were like a dictator. They would, they would squash people. They would raise their voice. They would use their power and their might to establish their control. But Isaiah says, when this king comes, he's going to come quietly. He's not going to quarrel or cry out. And Matthew says, when Jesus doesn't engage with the Pharisees, when he doesn't fight back, he lets them spout what they spout, but he comes back with the scriptures and with, with his logic and shows them their fallacy and he just gently walks away. Matthew says, this is the Messiah. This is how we were told the Messiah would come. Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. There will, there will not be many who would respond. Then we come to two illustrations that can be a little bit tricky to understand. He says, a battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not, pull, uh, put, be, he will not put out until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. So we have the illustration of, of the reed. Um, imagine like a marsh with reeds that, that you know, come up from the ground. Now, if you were to walk through that marsh, and somebody was trying to find your path like an hour later, it's super easy because if you walk through a marsh, they're so delicate that if you walk through them, they'll basically get trampled down or, or bend over. Um, so they're not really strong. And then we have this, this picture of a, of, a, of a smoldering wick. It's like, uh, you know, the, the candle barely has any life in it and you're just, it's just barely hanging on. Like any wind or your breath could easily snuff it out. And so what he's saying is uh, a battered reed he will not break off, a smoldering wick he will not put out. This is the least of these. Those who are broken and battered in this life that are barely hanging on, who are overcome by the, the, the world and the, the weight of things. If Jesus didn't come to destroy these. Now an earthly king that would come, he would take these into captivity and he would use them and abuse them. But not the king of heaven. The king of heaven will will bring justice that these, and in his name, that they will have hope. Think about this. The Gentiles will have hope in the promised Messiah. This is from, this is from Isaiah. This whole idea of, of all the nations will be gathered to the king. So Matthew uses this Old Testament quote, and he says, this Jesus fulfilled this. He quotes from Isaiah 42, the longest Old Testament quote that's used by Matthew in, in his whole gospel, and he quotes the Old Testament over and over and over again. He's trying to make a case to the, the Jews. If he wants to make a case to the Jews, he better be doing it from the Scriptures. And so then as he quotes this, the story unfolds. There's a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute and was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that, this, uh, so that the mute man spoke and saw. Matthew gives very little commentary on this. All we know about this man, there's a man who can't speak, and he can't see. And we're told that the reason that he can't speak and he can't see are because he's possessed by a demon. And this 
demon has bound him to the point where he can no longer see or communicate. And all we're told is that Jesus healed this man. And when he healed him, he was able to speak and see. I can't, can you imagine this guy? I have no idea how he responded. And then we come to verses 23 and 24, and 23 and 24 sort of show the big conflict, the tension in our story. So verses 18 through 21 sort of show us how the father sees the son. 23 and 24 show us the tension in humanity and how they respond to the son. So verse 23, all the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Now that seems a little bit rough in the New American Standard. But basically, they're, they're evaluating Jesus. They're seeing these signs and these wonders. They're seeing everything that he's doing. And they're in awe. Like this word amazed isn't used. At, this, this is like they are just profoundly affected by the things that they're seeing. Certainly, this is the Messiah. I can't believe what I'm seeing. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. There's a whole lot about Beelzebul that we could go into, but essentially it's like the Lord of the Flies, and it's, a, it's really a pun on, it's like a making fun of two different words and things, and, but for time's sake, I'm not really going to that. They're basically saying, Jesus is doing these things by the work of Satan. And it reminds, it's like what jealousy can do is, is, is jealousy can cause you to do foolish, wicked, evil things. It reminds me of Saul. Remember when David slayed Goliath? And all the people started saying, oh, David slayed Goliath. But then Saul, what he heard is like, oh, he's killed millions and billions. And all he's going to do is basically take away all your power and authority. And so then he goes crazy trying to kill David. Same thing is happening with the Pharisees. They see what Jesus is doing. Instead of acknowledging that the, the God of the universe is taking on flesh, instead of responding, they start making accusations. Remember verse 18, key verse. I will put my spirit upon him. So here we have the son, second person of the Godhead, the third person of the, tri- tr- the Trinity, which isn't a biblical word, uh, We see the Spirit is upon him doing these miraculous signs, authenticating. And they attribute what Jesus is doing to the work, to the hand of Satan. That's a dangerous place to be. So Jesus, knowing their thoughts, and knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. This is simple. This is in military terms. I don't know if all the forces use it, but in the, in the, in the SEAL teams, uh, we, like, oh, yeah, it's everybody uses it. The term blue on blue is a bad thing. That means that your own team is shooting its own team. You're in combat. Blue on blue means that you have squad A and squad B, and they basically are turning and shooting at one another and killing each other, but they're on the same side. And Jesus is saying in combat, this is what uh, any house that turns within itself it's not going to stand because it's going to destroy itself and the enemy can stand back and laugh. Which as an instructor, some of my favorite times were like our aim as instructors when I was a buds instructor was to basically get into their heads and let them start squabbling. One of my favorite events, it would ha- we didn't do it every single time, 
But around Wednesday night of Hell Week, two in the morning, we told them you guys could get some sleep. But see, they weren't really ever going to get sleep. They had two hours sleep up to this point, and we said, you guys can go to sleep. All you have to do is play by the rules, and you'll be able to sleep. So we put them into their tents. You know, it's those big old army canvas tents. So they're all in the tents. We wait five minutes until they're all just out cold asleep. (laughs) One of us busts out a Snickers bar, eats a Snickers bar. Then we basically start firing the guns. Everybody out. You can't have the guy that just ate the Snickers bar because you get the nuts in your throat and it's hard to talk. So you have somebody else say, here's a Snickers bar wrapper. Johnson was eating a Snickers bar wrapper in the back of the thing. All you guys go hit the surf and get back here. And so then they come back. And then they were like, guys, all you have to do is sleep. No eating Snickers bars, okay? So they go in there. They think that they're secret because they're in the building. Like You can hear them start like, okay, nobody eat any Snickers bars. It's like, where are the Snickers bars? Anyhow, like, I, I don't eat Snickers bars. Two minutes later, an instructor will drink his Mountain Dew. Boop, 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 boop. Fire off the guns. So-and-so is drinking of Mountain Dew, trying to stay awake. Then you send him back. We do this like three or four times with all this stuff. By like the third or fourth time, you can hear them in there like fighting with each other. I'm going to kill the next guy that eats a Snickers bar. No Snickers, no Skittles, no Mountain Dew, none of it. And then they just go out each other. We giggle like little kids in the outside. Like They're not going to sleep at all. We told them they could sleep this whole time. This is what Jesus is pointing out. We, we always know that, that, that by the end of Hell Week, we'll play games like that, and it'll be like, oh, send one person away, and the whole class will be like, I can't say what they'd say to us, but they say, no, we're all going. And they're so divided that you, you like can't get in, you cannot chink the armor. And Jesus is saying, like, listen, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. Once you get the eternal division, it's just a matter of time before it crumbles. This happens to churches all the time. This happens to marriages all the time. This happens to family members all the time. I'll never forget my Greek and Hebrew professor that he said that he and his brothers were best friends until they became Christians. Then he became a Christian, then his brother became a Christian, but his brother became a Christian in a King James-only church. And because his brother, my professor, wasn't a King James-only guy, he and his brother became like total enemies. Like Christianity divided them over this like stupid belief. And it was like 10 years before the brother was sort of convinced that you could read another translation and be a Christian. And then they, their the relationship was restored. But all of this is of Satan. This is why Jesus, at the end of his life, like before he was to go to the cross, he didn't pray that the church would explode. He said he prayed for unity. That as they were united, as they loved one another, that the world would see. And Jesus continues in verse 26, and he says, If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. Then how will his kingdom stand? If, if Satan is basically sending out two different squads to attack each other, like what, what, what good is that? He says, if I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, 
But by who do your sons cast them out? Now, this is interesting. This is really kind of funny. I don't want us to miss this. Okay, so there's two religious camps in Israel during this time. There's the Pharisees and there's the Sadducees. Jesus is throwing a stone at the Pharisees. See, the, the, the Sadducees wouldn't be casting out demons. They, they didn't believe in uh, supernatural things. So they, they were excluded from this. But the Pharisees believed in supernatural things. They believed in literal resurrection. They, be, they believed that they were the conservative ones. And so Jesus says, now, your sons, other Pharisees, if you go through Israel, uh, there's demon possession. We see them casting out demons. Now, if they're casting out demons also, that kind of means your own people are doing the same thing I'm doing. That means your own people are on Satan's side. And then he says, for this reason, they will be your judges. When, they, when word gets out that you accused me of, of, of basically getting this demon out of this man who was blind and, and mute, because I cast a demon out, and you said I did this on Satan's power, when word gets back to them that you credited this to Satan's work, you're going to pay. <laughs> they're going to judge you, and they're going to come down on you for for acting like the liberal Sadducees. And he was going to, Jesus is turning on them and creating division on their own ranks. Then he says, um, but if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, which he has, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. Now, this one's the, the strong man in this illustration, I believe, is Satan. So, so this man who is blind and deaf is bound by Satan. We, we see that. He has a demon within him. He can't speak because of the demon. He can't, he can't see because of the demon. And, and, and Jesus says, how, unless you bind the strong man of the house, uh, a, a rich man's house would be more like a compound with heavily guarded walls. He would have many servants. He would have so much power. But if you wanted to pillage his house, those servants would have to turn against him and bind him. And then once he is bound, they had free reign on the place. And so Jesus is making the point is, I've bound Satan. Like Satan is bound and I, my power trumps Satan's power. And my authority, my ability, I can cast out these demons no problem because Satan has nothing on me. Verse 30, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. There's only two options. You've either acknowledged Christ and responded to Christ, or you've rejected him. Now, the rejection camp could be like, well, I just don't know. I'm just, I don't really buy into that. Neutral is against him. There's only for him and against him. And he sort of puts this decision, this, this crossroads before the people. This is one nice thing about New Year's. You know, as we start the year, it's a time like, ah, let's just, let's just kind of wipe away the, the whiteboard. Let's set some goals. Let's sort of, I'm not big into resolutions, but I'm all for goals and planning and like, hey, I want to accomplish certain things. I, wanna, I want this year to look like this. It's just a good time to sort of evaluate and ponder life. 
And this is, this is the first sort of question that any of us can answer. How have you responded to Christ? Are you with him or are you against him? Are you with him or are you sort of laissez-faire about him and you're not, eh, you know, we'll see. Not really against him, but, well, Jesus says if you're, you're either with him or you're against him. There's no, there's no middle ground. And he says, therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against this Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So this is sort of what's known to or referred, referred to as, as the unpardonable sin. Um, I, I want to say a couple things here. I, 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 um, how, how much to say, I don't know. I, I think that understanding the context here is we've already seen verse, okay, so 28, Jesus says, uh, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, yes, he did, that's true. Um, there's against the Spirit of God, against the Holy Spirit. We have to back all the way up to Matthew's Old Testament quote saying who Christ is. And in verse 18, I will put my Spirit upon him. So here, God becomes flesh. We just celebrated Christmas, which is the incarnation of, of Christ, that God becomes man. As he becomes man, the Spirit of God is upon him. He is doing signs and wonders, miraculous things, authenticating who he is. And so now this blasphemy of the Spirit that Jesus is talking about is he's talking in context to the Pharisees who witnessed this. They see the miracle of the Messiah, all these sign wonders that the Spirit of God is moving through the Son, doing these great wonders, and what do they do? They say he's doing it by the authority of Belzebul. So the first thing I want to say about the unpardonable sin is first and foremost, I, I don't think we today can even commit this sin in order to commit this sin you had to have been living during the life of christ you had to witness the things that jesus was doing by this power of the spirit of god and then you would have had to have done what the pharisees were doing and saying what jesus is doing by the spirit of god this is actually by the spirit of satan that's the sin that they're addressing now, the closest that I would say that we could come to this, and I, and I would say the, the practical application of this, is the closest that we can come to the unpardonable sin is to die apart from Christ. The scriptures make it very clear that at death comes judgment. There's no purgatory. There's no working your way from, you know, floor number 11 up to floor 16 or whatever. It just, the Bible doesn't support that claim. The Bible says when a man dies, he faces judgment. You're either in Christ or you're out of Christ. There's no undoing it at death. Um, I, I want to address if there are those. I've only met a handful of people in my life who genuinely were fearful that they had committed the unpardonable sin. 
<clears throat> the first one I ever met was this lady. <clears throat> Ann and I were worshiping at a little church called La Roca. It was a Spanish church in, in Chula Vista. And this lady who was a sweet lady, um, she'd, she had a very... <clears throat> I waterboarded myself on that last sip of water, so I'm <laughs> dealing with that right now. Um, <clears throat> um, she had a very rough life, but her spirit was so sensitive to the Lord, and she was just broken before me, um, fearful that, that like 15 years before, she said, well, I sort of gave God the finger, and I was really angry, and I committed the unpardonable sin, and there's no hope for me. And, and I think learning from her that, that, that I would say if you've, if you've ever felt like you've committed the unpardonable sin, if you're worried or concerned about it, it you haven't committed it. <laughs> like, like the being concerned about it, like the person who has committed this doesn't feel that way. Um, I found a quote by Henry Ironside, who's, a, who's a, a pastor of another day, and he says this that I thought was really good. He said, Many dear souls have tormented themselves or have been tormented by the devil with the awful thought that they are guilty of the sin here described, whereas deep in their hearts they fully recognize the deity of the Lord Jesus and have no thought of attributing to the devil the power that wrought in him. The, the issue is, what have you done with Jesus? And if before you came to Christ, like what's always lost in this whole thing is Jesus says basically everything's forgivable. There's no sin that you've committed that God will not forgive. Jesus paid for it all on the cross. In the context, the people that he is speaking to, he's, a, he's confronting these Pharisees who had front row seats to the, 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 Jesus came down from heaven and is walking amongst people. The Spirit of God is in front of them. There's a guy who is blind. There's a guy who can't speak. In addition to oh, so many more miracles that Jesus walks up and he says, stretch out your hand. You can see now. You can do all this stuff. This isn't like some fake prophet that's on TV today that's making Millions and millions of dollars. This is Jesus silently healing people, demonstrating his Messiahship. And they said, he's doing it by the power of Satan. That's to, this, that you, none, you guys have not done that. But I'd say the warning here is don't die apart from Christ. Jesus is the only way that we can get right with God. And he goes on to say, verse 33, he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good or, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit, you brood of vipers. How can you be an evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. Now, if you'll turn with me back to chapter 7, so just a few pages back, we're going we're gonna to go back into the Sermon on the Mount. And back in chapter 7, verses 16 through 20, 
as Jesus is wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount, he says, uh, really in verse 15 we'll begin. He says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from bush, gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears good bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. And he, he goes on. But we'll go back to Matthew chapter 12. And I love what Jesus says to the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees, even, even as he's addressing them with very harsh words, and sometimes the person needs harsh words to sort of be woken up out of their stupor. But look what he says to them. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. Does that sound like that there's no hope for them? No, they have a choice. Hey, either make the tree good or make the tree bad. Then he, he, he talks about uh, the fruit that comes out really is from the heart. And so the question is, how do you get your heart good? The only way to do that is through Christ who changes. He's in the heart transplant business. I always think it's Alberto just said, amen. I'll never forget walking into Alberto after his heart surgery. Cinco de Mayo of 2012. I'll never, you know, the Spanish pastor has a heart attack on Cinco de Mayo. I'll never forget. <laughs> so I walk into the hospital, finally had a surgery, and I was kind of like, you know, I'm the bad guy who harasses guys in the hospital, especially when it's like Alberto. And I just remember seeing Alberto kind of laughing when he saw me. And when you have heart surgery, they give you these big old hearts. And he's holding his big old heart. I took a picture of him, posted on Facebook and everywhere. And it's kind of was like this picture of like that God is in the business of giving us new hearts. That as we turn our lives to him, he changes us from the inside out. It's, it's not about forcing good works, about, about doing these things. However, good works are a fruit of a changed heart. And so there are, I, I will absolutely say there are believers who are walking in the flesh. But for the person who's in Christ, who's walking in the flesh, and there is no fruit in their lives, the Bible gives no assurance of your salvation, quite frankly. I mean, the, the Bible gives assurance in Christ, and if you're in Christ, you have the Spirit of God, and if the Spirit of God is working, then you'll see fruit in your life, and through the fruit, that gives you assurance. And it's a beautiful thing, I think, that... That I believe that I was saved walking in the flesh, but when I was walking in the flesh and there's no fruit in my life, oh boy, I was so convicted. Because there's just not assurance there. Well, I knew I was saved by faith alone, but there were no there was no evidence in my life, so maybe I was like, maybe I didn't even maybe I wasn't saved. And I love that that the spirit works in a way that, that the default is to point us back to Christ. The verse I didn't read, he said, the very uh, verse 36, he says, But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. Um, this reminds me of a Navajo man I met just a few months ago. Um, 
you know, we went and visited Josh. We drove all day. We, we go to see the, the, like the headquarters of where they worked. And then they took us back to the accounting room. And he's like, oh, you got to meet this man. I can't even remember the guy's name. Do you remember the guy's name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The accounting guy? Oh, whatever. It doesn't matter. We'll, we'll call him Tony. But his name wasn't Tony. <laughs> it was like Little Eagle or something cool, like way cooler than our names, you know. And so he's back there. And he's just kind of, he's talking very warm. And Josh says, you know, so-and-so is a very, he's a very quiet man. But when he speaks, you better listen to him. And he looked at us and he said, well, the Bible says that we're going to give an account for every word that we say. It's like, oh, brother, I have so much growing to do because my words just kind of flow. Like, I think as my words come out, it's like, oh, I need to be that, you know. And, and, I, and I, you know, not to get off too much off sidetrack, but then, Eddie, we met with this other guy who's from a, from a, he was a Navajo guy as well. But and he was just like talking and talking and talking and talking. And, and, and the other Indian, the Native American guy uh, was there when, when his friend left. He's like, most, most Navajo men don't, don't talk that much. <laughs> it was kind of, super funny. Like it was, but there was a lesson from that trip. So I see these words. That I think our, our, our words, what comes out of our mouth, in many ways, that, that reflects your heart. How you speak to your, to your friends, how you speak to your spouse, how you speak to your children, how you speak in front of all of these people about others. The Bible says a whole lot about gossip, a whole lot about words. Let me get back to my notes here. We're on the conclusion, but I've kind of like, I um. when I look at this passage and I look at the, the beauty of Christ as the Father sees him and I see how these two different groups of people responded, um, my prayer is to those of you who are not certain that you've responded to Christ, I would encourage you that you would, you would respond. Um, turning to him is simple. It's not about... It's not about cleaning yourself up and then going to him. Uh, he simply says, believe in what I've done. I've done it all for you. And then as we've turned to him, his spirit comes upon us and begins sort of changing us from the inside out. I don't think it happens overnight. I, I think it takes years. I mean, I'm st- he's still cleaning out me. Like, it, t- t- it takes a whole lifetime. And, and this year, as I, as, as I start this year with this message... Uh, personally, like uh, I'm not projecting this on you, but for for me, there's a sense in my heart that I'm, I'm, I'm longing, craving to go deeper with, with the Lord. And, and I'm not saying this to make any sort of like thing, but I'm like, I'm going to like try to be in the Bible every day. Like I want to try to, a bunch of us are like, this is the year we're going to get through the Bible this year. You guys have all the other new years. I'm like, I'm not doing it this year. I'm not doing it this year. But this year, I really want to be intentional about being in the word, being in uh, flipping real pages of, 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 of books that lead me closer to Christ. Um, I really want to spend time communing with Christ because that, that's how our hearts get, get cleared. Um, uh, like I always joke, I'm not here on Sundays because I'm a pastor. I'm here on Sundays because I'm a Christian. And, and the Bible makes it clear that our time of fellowship with one another 
um, my prayer for all of us is that we all would want to be closer to Christ, that we would all be have a renewed commitment to, to fellowshipping together, to, be, to being here on Sundays, to, to prioritizing Christ above all. And the, the scriptures, Hebrews 10.25 makes, don't, I think it's 10.25, uh, don't, don't forsake the assembling with one another, that we would grow deeper during the week in relationships and in accountability and praying and encouraging one another. Like, I think that God designed us to be a part of, of, of community and family. And so my prayer in 2016 is that our God's hand would be upon us and that our hearts for Jesus would expand, our, our love for others would deepen, and that our, our light for the gospel would shine brighter than ever this year. And so, Father, we do thank you for your beloved Son. Father, we can't possibly understand the triunity of God, that you are one in three distinct persons. But Father, I thank you that Christ came, that he lived his life, that as he walked this earth, Lord, that he exegeted, exegeted the Father, that he, he showed us who God is in his life. We thank you, Lord, that he came to the least of these. We thank you for his example. I thank you for his perfect life. I thank you, Lord, that Christ died for me, that he paid for every sin that I've ever committed, that I ever will commit, that I am committing now, if any. Like, I don't... But I thank you that he paid my debt in full. Father, I pray that you would light our fires anew, that we would have a deep, deep longing for you this year. Father, I pray that we would grow closer to you, that our worship would um, just come from deep within us. And Father, again, I thank you for each person that's here today. And I pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.